0: We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today, joining us is Isis Miller, who is a Community and Events Manager at Black Girls Code. Let's jump in and get to know Isis. Isis, welcome. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Oh, we're thrilled you're here. Isis, for those that don't know you, tell us a little about about what you're doing for work at uh, Black Girls Code.
1: Sure. So like you said, I am the community and events manager for Black Girls Code, which is simply put, I get the pleasure of organizing very unique and impactful events for our community. I specifically focus on, (laughs) to be redundant, community events. So what that means is our non-technical events. We like to look at our girls as whole individuals, right? Like, yes, they love STEM. Yes, they love science and technology. And yes, we want to teach them about those things. But we also want to hold space for the fact that they live at many intersections in life. They're Black, they're girls, they're young, and they're living in this time and place. And so I also focus on hosting events that acknowledge that and reflect that back to them and give them things and events around like self-esteem training and what that looks like and cultural events and working with our partners to create really just fun experiences for them that have nothing to do with STEM. So I like to say I have the most fun job at our organization um, <laughs> because I get to I get to have fun with the girls all the time and I don't have to, to really teach them any tech skills. So that's actually great for me.
0: That's, that's wonderful to hear. I want to hear more about that because I want to tap into understanding that that passion you have. But first, tell us a little bit about ISIS growing up. Where did you grow up? Tell us about your family and culture and your background.
1: Oh, boy. I don't think you have that much time. Um, Try I mean, us. I want to confer with my therapist on a lot of that. But <laughs> I'll give you <laughs> the nitty gritty. I'm actually from South Florida. I was born and raised in South Florida, uh, specifically Papano Beach, as well as Miami. So that's where I hail don't judge me. I know Florida is wild, but I now <laughs> I now live in Oakland. I've been in the Bay Area now for about three years, so that this is home for me at the moment. And you know, I really I really love it here. I did go to school in Orlando at the University of Central Florida, where I studied marketing and communications. And then what was that? We wanted to know my backstory, my yeah. favorite
0: color, my what was what was all. Yeah, tell us tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah, where, where's your family from?
1: Okay, sure. So I'm actually, that's an interesting one. I'm actually adopted. I was adopted as a baby and my family is from South Florida as well. My doctor's family is from South Florida as well as Mississippi. So, you know, country, we, we country folks. <laughs> and I really love that. My dad is a Southern Baptist pastor. That is an episode in and of itself, what it means to be a PK. And my mother is a librarian, which has had such a deep influence on, on me as a, as an individual. Um, I'm, a, I'm a reader, first and foremost. So that is, is a little bit about my, my family. I have mm-hmm. many brothers and sisters. I being the baby of the brothers and sisters. And yeah, yeah, that's a little bit about, I guess my family background. I won't go too deep into that. Like I said, we got
0: <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm curious, you know, lots of brothers and sisters and what you just described, librarian in the home, pastor in the home. How do you think that impacted you and who you are today? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I didn't know you were going to come with these questions. Like, I <laughs> lay, lay down on the couch for a little bit. <laughs> like, I just, okay. So I think that it's impacted me in a lot of ways. I mean, it's, as far as growing up in the church, like I'm a community builder. That's always what I've been. And I think that that was my first community was being mm. part of the black community and, and, and seeing how tight knit that was and understanding the impact of what that looks like to be a, a close knit black community. I mean, we have that saying, you know, it takes a village, right? And that was That was very much true in in my upbringing. It took a village to raise, you know, all these little bad kids. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so we had, you know, aunties, uncles, cousins, pastors, wife, the elders of the church, they were all part of my upbringing. And that was, like I said, my first look at how important it is to have your community around you and to, to have your elders around you and to acknowledge and respect your ancestors. So that was, hugely impactful for me in a lot of positive ways. I mean there are of course negative ways in that. You know, I I'm, I'm also a queer person. And so growing up in the church was was interesting, you know, coming into my identity of queerness that was challenging to say the least because you know the black community has its own issues around homophobia unfortunately. And like I said we don't need to delve too deep into that but so yeah, there was a lot of positive in that I was surrounded by folks who loved me and cared for me and wanted to see me thrive and, and, and were so invested in my future. And then there was the, the, the downfalls of when you, you sort of stray from what they think you ought to be and what that backlash can look like. So that was what the church did for me and, and having a librarian as a mother, that was huge. Like I, I literally grew up in a library. Like after school <laughs> I would go, you know, we weren't allowed to stay at home and if there were no late
0: books. But- no late huh? book. No late books. No, no late, late piece. Books. No.
1: <laughs> I had the hook up, so you know I got my mind <laughs> clear. You know, what I mean? <laughs> but that was super impactful for me. Just being surrounded by books at all times and being brought black literature very early in life has had just. I I can't even. I can't even express what a deep impact that has had on me as a human being. It's just that that was my first understanding of of not being alone. Like when you're reading the stories of, of those that came before you, you Maya Angelou and, and Zora Nell Hurston and, and Toni Morrison. And that's what I was brought. And I ate it up. And that was for me, it's like, wow, I thought I was just this weird kid in the world, but it turns out there's just a long legacy of Black weirdos and, and folks who, who decided to step outside of the status quo and to create and imagine new worlds for us and to tell our stories. So Yeah, I mean, being raised within the confines of religion, which can be very narrow. And then on the other hand, having access to books which can broaden your mind exponentially, we're almost in competition with one another.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. (laughs) <laughs> you know, Isis, you've had great experience in event planning through unique experiences and building community, like you mentioned before. How did you get started on your career path? Like, how did you start to say, hey, you know, this is, this is what I like, this is what I'm good at, and this is what I want to do?
1: Well, I think that actually springs from, again, what, you, what we were speaking about around the church, right? It's like, if anybody knows what it's like to emcee an event. Is a pastor of the church, right? Like that is is crowd control. That is crowd (laughs) command at its finest. And seeing that on a regular basis, I was like, man, like I thought I wanted to be a pastor for a long time because I really just admired having that kind of influence over a large group of people and having that sway and being able to sway the emotions of a crowd and being able to to bring together people from all different walks of life and to, to really celebrate and uplift. Mm. And so that was sort of my like I was like, ah oh, man, I really want to do that. Turns out I didn't really want to be a pastor. I just really wanted to have a platform. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I just had I just had something to say is what it was what it really was. So I sort of, I started to harness that. I'd always been a writer. I'd always been someone who's again, just invested in community. And so that's sort of how I started to take on jobs is like, how do I take on even the smallest job and, and make it a place where we can bridge community. So I started small, like even after college, I was working at like a coffee shop in Miami and like I was a barista and, and I loved it. I mean, I loved specialty coffee. I learned, I loved learning about it and all the little intricacies that went into it. But I also saw this hub as a place for community. You had your artists, your lawyers, anyone from any walk of life. The one common denominator is this $3 cup of coffee. Mm. And so I saw that as an opportunity bridge. And that's what I did. So I started talking to the manager and I was like, Hey, like, let's start an open mic night. And that was really my first taste of event organizing was just starting my own little open mic night. And that was hugely successful. We packed the place every time that would just be overflow into the streets. And that was just, I was like, wow, this is what I do. (laughs) This is who I am. This is what I do. And from the coffee shop to to working with galleries to do events with them to having bars and other venues hire me to take on events for them as well to working with international brands like Soho House and doing events for them and it was just one thing that led to the other thing that led to the other thing and other opportunities so where you know no matter where I was working I found a way to create an event in that space That's I found cool. a way to even bridge outside of what I was doing and you know doing it on the weekends and doing events for other venues and so that's sort of what has brought me here today in working with Black Girls Code, because I've always wanted to make sure that my gifts were being used for my community. And at the end of the day, my, my community is always going to be Black folks, especially Black girls. I mean, man, <laughs> we see how disrespected and, and and downplayed and slept on Black women are. And so I will always champion Black girls. So they never have to experience the world the way I experienced the world as being negated and and told I couldn't and told I shouldn't and and all of that. So I'm always going to uplift them. And now, you know, being with Black Girls Code, it allows me to use all of my gifts to serve those who who most need it. And yeah, I think that was your question. (laughs)
2: Well, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for the work that you do at Black Girls Code, because I I have a 12-year-old daughter and she has attended some of the Black Girls Code sessions in New York and, and you all do a fantastic job. So first, thank you for that, Isis.
1: That's wonderful. It's great to hear. Thank you for for supporting her and her interests. That's I mean, we need more Black fathers doing that too. That's amazing.
2: Absolutely. So let's talk about 2020 because this <laughs> year has been a year like no other in so many different ways. And I'm curious to hear from you, Isis, in terms of events at Black Girls Code, can you talk a little bit about how you've had to maybe shift or pivot the strategy as the pandemic has has taken over our country?
1: Yeah. So I joined BGC right before all of this went down and I was pumped. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go get to hang out with these dope girls and be a mentor to them and work directly with them and their families and build these amazing relationships. And then And then 2020 came along and and kind of dashed all of our hopes and dreams. But it was honestly a blessing in disguise for myself and for our organization. And, you know, I don't want to downplay like how difficult it has been for so many people. And it is. (laughs) Yeah, I I really don't want to downplay the losses of, of what 2020 has has felt like for a lot of folks. But at the same time, I also want to hold space for the fact that it is it has really allowed us to rethink our strategy. It allowed us... So we had to take our events, which were all in person. All of our events were in person. And in chapter cities, we have 15 chapter cities where we're located. And so we were on the ground and we really had to sit down with the team and like strategize immediately on how we were going to take our events virtual. Mm -hmm. And we were able to do that. I mean, we were able to take our in-person offerings and... Work with a lot of partners and discover new software that allowed us to open our events up to absolutely everyone. And what the result of that was, was that we grew our community in ways that we had never grown before. Mm. With us being able to offer our classes not just to 50 students in one area, but to absolutely anyone who has that Zoom link, I mean, we saw our numbers skyrocket. For me, that has also allowed us to offer the types of community events with partners that we would have never been able to do before. So for instance, we're partnering right now with Netflix and they've been incredible partners with us. And one of the events we did last week when was a, a cast meet and greet of their film, um, A Babysitter's Guide to Monster Hunting, which is just a very cute film, very you know, holiday-esque film. And it allowed us to have our girls in the same room with the star and cast of this show. And so nobody had to travel, it reduced our expenses, and they still got this really intimate moment with celebrities. And that was just such a cool event for our girls. And we're continuing to do things like that with with some other upcoming films. We're working with Nike on some engagements. So again, it's kept our costs down. Like I said, there's no travel costs involved. And now we're able to offer it in a sense where nobody has to leave their homes. And partners are now even more willing to go above and beyond to work with us because it costs down their costs and their time as well. So it's just, it's, it's opened up new opportunities and new ways of thinking. And we honestly will never go back to the just in-person model. It's going to now be a lot more virtual and we're going to lean a lot more on that virtual experience because we've seen such success and our numbers. have. We've served over 20,000 students to date. And like, I think a lot of that in, is due to the fact that we did pivot to virtual. And we're learning too. Like that's, I think is what's been really cool is it leveled the playing field for everyone on our team. Everyone had to quickly say like, I am not an expert in this, how can I learn? And so it put up all of us in a place where we could sit down and learn together. Uh, we took on new skills and we learned new softwares and, and we talked a lot more and, and it just, it opened up our, our ways of communication. So I think it, it has been a huge blessing for us in a lot of ways and certainly there have been challenges especially like building community which is always the first thing at the forefront of my mind it's like how do we make sure these girls feel connected to one another yeah and that's always the challenge and I think that we've been doing a great job with that so I'm introducing our BGC ambassador program to do just that so we're connecting not only our students to each other but the parents to each other as well like how do you support a kid who wants to learn Python when you don't know Python? You know what I mean? Like they need support networks just as much as the kids need support networks. So that's a long-winded way of saying it's been a learning experience and a blessing, and I feel like I'm at the forefront of my game because I'm getting this expertise in, in virtual events. So like I can really go to any company and say I'm an expert in virtual events, and that feels empowering for me.
2: Mm, that's, that's awesome. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm curious to know, as we as we think about this new virtual world and kids are home all day learning from home, you know, you, you read so many articles about the challenges that kids have at home because not everyone has the proper setup, right? Might be Wi-Fi issue, might be a computer issue. Do you all help and coach, I guess, the parents to make sure that they do have the proper setup because you said you've expanded to so many areas because it's virtual. I would imagine that the, the tech setup has, might have been a little bit of a challenge at, at times.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, we do our very best to make sure that the programs that we use, the software that we use is accessible and free. We mm-hmm. don't use things that students' families have to pay for to get access to. That's always going to be, that's been part of our model since we started and that will always be part of our models to make sure that things are accessible. So more than likely, our students can, whatever they need, they can use an app that is free. They have Zoom. They're already used to doing Zoom in the classroom right now. And we also have a Loma program. So for students who don't have access to laptops and things like that, they can actually reach out to us and we will send them a laptop to be able to use. So we're also looking out for them in that way.
0: Isis, I want to ask you a little bit about what you, you mentioned earlier about what it's like to be a Black woman. And I want to ask you a few questions about, you know, how you've handled issues of discrimination when faced with them. What are some experiences that you've had personally or professionally, directly, like, that you had? And then what are some ways that you handled them when confronted with that?
1: Well, I mean, (laughs) when I'm asked about, like, discrimination as a Black person, I always, like, think of this Zora Neale Hurston quote. And she says, sometimes I feel discriminated against, but it doesn't make me angry. It merely astonishes me. How can anyone deny themselves the pleasure of my company is beyond me. Like, and I'm always just floored by that. Like that to me, is just like, you're right. Like I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the ways in which I'm discriminated against. Like it's just, it's, it would take up too much energy. It it just would. Like I'm, I'm black. I'm non-binary. I'm queer. I, you know, like I'm female presenting in a lot of ways. It's just, I'm not going to spend my energy trying to navigate other people's discrimination against me. I've experienced it, but I, I don't know. Like I just, I've learned to not let it take up too much space because if you're constantly allowing and thinking about that, then that's all your energy is focusing on. And I just have better things to do. Like, I just, Agreed. I have bigger and better things to do with my time than think about that. So like, I know it happens and I've learned certainly there are coping mechanisms to deal with it and I'm in therapy. So I think that's, that's also a thing. And I, I suggest all black folks, especially like, you know, female identified black folks. If, no, you know, all black folks, uh, you know, not everybody go to therapy. <laughs> Especially in 2020, but yeah, I mean, I deal with it with the understanding that it's not a reflection of me. It's not a reflection of my worth or my value or what I bring. It's somebody else's insecurity. It's somebody else's is is ignorance. It's not, it has nothing to do with me. Somebody else is. It's just not on me. It's it's not on me, fam. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave that to God to deal with. You know.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, that's tremendous perspective. Where do you think you developed that? Were there mentors or folks in your life that helped you to have that, you know, tremendous perspective?
1: I mean, the first thing I did was quote Zora, right? So like mm-hmm. those those are always my mentors or my, my literary ancestors. It's the Zora, it's Toni Morrison, it's Alice Walker, it's uh, Octavia Butler, it's Bell Hooks, it's like James Baldwin. It's like, if you, like that is, I stand on on the words of my ancestors to get me through because they faced so much more than we, uh, man, they faced everything. They, I mean, yes, we, we faced the threat of violence, but they really did as well. And so I stand on that. I stand on the heritage that we, I mean, look, we come from a powerful people. We come from a dope people. Like there is just, I, I already know that there is nothing I cannot surpass. There's nothing I can't surmount based on simply that, based on simply what it took, what it took for me to be here today. Like, I was thinking about that the other day. It's like, how many couplings, how many survivals, how many lives mm-hmm. had to come together for me to exist? Like, mm-hmm. that in and of itself is a testimony. Mm-hmm. So, like, I can't do anything but win. Like, yeah. like I, I just can't, you know?
2: Is that where you draw inspiration from?
1: Absolutely. I, I draw inspiration from from the words that I read, but I also draw inspiration. It's not just the ancestors, but the youth. Like I work with with nine, ten, eleven year old girls who are creating apps in the, that are centered on social justice. Like that is inspiring mm. to me. Like <laughs> I am just inspired by little girls who know more about coding and technology than I ever will. Like that is that is such a deep inspiration. So the girls that I work with are really what inspires me the most because they're so passionate and driven and business minded. Like had I had the skills that these kids have, man, look, it would have been a wrap. Like it would have been a wrap, and that's our job, right? Is to make sure that they have those skills. But so it's it's really yes, it's a combination of the past and the ancestors, but it is also the future. I look to them for so much inspiration, and Gen Z, man, Gen Z is is killing it. Like they're just so free. They're they're allowed to be free because of the, the things that we've done to to get them to this point. But like just watching them live in their truth is so beautiful. I mean, I identify as non-binary, for instance, and that language did not come about and did not gain popularity until Gen Z brought it to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And like if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have the language to make me feel safe in my own body. Like I owe Gen Z a debt of gratitude. (laughs) And like that that is huge for me. So Yeah, I mean, I get inspiration from the past and and from what our future clearly looks like, which is so powerful and beautiful. And, you know, Beyonce. So, yeah, (laughs) whatever the Knowles family is doing, Blue Ivy, Beyonce, Solange, Mama Tina, you know, I I get all all the answers from them as well.
2: (laughs) I hear you on that. I I think I'm the same way with her husband, Jay-Z. So uh, I hear you (laughs) what do you read in these days? What piqued your interest? What do you read in the stay informed or for entertainment or for knowledge purposes?
1: I'm always reading something Afrofuturism related. I'm always reading Octavia Butler. I will always reference the words of Octavia Butler because she really was prophetic. Like If you read Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, it is uncanny how much she predicted like what's going on right now. So I'm, I think that, you know, I really believe in the values of Sankofa in that, you know, in order to go to know where you're going, you have to know where you've been. So I'm definitely rereading some Octavia Butler at the moment. I also picked up a book by uh, Bill Bryson, a history, I think it's called a history of almost everything. Mm. Uh, A short, yeah. So what it called? Uh, Yes. I believe that is the, the, yeah, a short history of almost everything. And for me, it's because I want to be worldly, right? Like, I want to have a, a balanced knowledge of of everything. And I think he does a very good job of making things funny and succinct and, and helping you get an understanding of concepts that are intimidating, like, you know, space-time and things like that. Like, that is... I'm a nerd. Like, I'm always thinking about space travel and, and things like that. And, and Afrofuturism, I have a very... Uh, we actually just got done with our hackathon, which was Afrofuturism related. So that's huge for me. I love Afrofuturism because it allows us to use our imagination to think outside of our current experiences. It allows us to create new worlds. It allows us to think like, what would the Black experience be had we not been colonized? And so freeing sure. our imagination in that way is, is liberating. So that's what I'm reading. Always, like I said, always Octavia Butler. Adrienne Marie Brown. I I love Adrienne Marie Brown. If y'all haven't read, um, was it, uh, gosh, what's, have you read? What am I? What, well, there's pleasure activism mm-hmm. and then there's uh, emergent strategies. There it is. So Adrienne Marie Brown is, is also a huge source of not only knowledge, information, like I'm always looking at their Instagram. They're a huge current influence for me as well.
2: Awesome. Awesome. All right. Got another fun question I love asking every uh-huh. staff on the podcast. Give me the top 3 apps that you use on your phone and you can't name email, calendar or text messaging.
1: Ooh. Okay. <laughs> I mean, okay. Well, like I'm a human, right? So Instagram, all right. Uh, LinkedIn, all right, and Slack.
2: Who's your favorite person or business to follow on Instagram?
1: Adrian Murray Brown. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're one. Adrienne Marie Brown. I would say Erica Hart is amazing as well. Those are probably my, you know, Beyonce. But Beyonce don't drop nothing, you know. <laughs> I mean, very secretive. So I'm always like in the, in the bushes waiting for Beyonce to drop. But those are probably my favorite Instagram accounts to follow. Museum Mammy, Kimberly Drew is, is really dope. Jenna Wortham is really dope. I'm sure I'm missing a bunch here. Like if people asked me this before, I would totally know. Like I'm always scrolling, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, those are probably my favorites.
2: All right. All okay. good.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, ISIS, space travel,
0: Afrofuturism, <laughs> so much. How can our listeners stay in touch with you, follow you, and listen to, to more of what you have to share?
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram. Um, my IG is Godex ISIS. So it's G-O-D-D-E-X underscore ISIS. I also have a platform called Black NB. It's B-L-K-E-N-B-Y. And that's actually a new platform that I just started very recently for Black non-binary folks. So that is a a cause that's near and dear to my heart as, you know, 2020 and, and even, you know, the years previous have seen a lot of death in the Black trans community. And I really want to hold space for for our experiences as not only non-binary, but trans folks as well. So Black and B, where we, where we really just highlight the stories of, of Black non-binary folks. Because, you know, we free. We, we don't even need these binaries. We out here.
0: Isis, <laughs> thank you so much. It's been a blast. Everyone, thank you for listening. And you can find more episodes where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks.